0: You're listening to Wide Margins. I'm Drew Kaiser, and this is episode 37, Jacob's Ladder. I don't know about you, I've really been enjoying thinking and talking about Jacob. He's such an interesting character. And uh, there are a lot of people in this world who are interesting, but who don't have the kind of experiences that Jacob had. Jacob has the combination of being an interesting person and also having all these interesting, thought-provoking experiences. And uh, a lot of interesting people out there just never have those opportunities. Or maybe it's the case that it's the interesting people who always seem to find themselves in interesting experiences. I, I'm not sure. I don't. What do you think? I don't know. I just know that I'm thankful that God revealed the life of Jacob so that we could talk about it on this podcast, and I'm thankful to you for tuning in and being so faithful to listen. This is the third episode on Jacob, I think. I don't know how many it will take to get through his whole life, but we're going to go all the way to the end of his life, and that involves so many great things that I'm excited about. Today's episode is one that I've really been anticipating because it involves a dream, And dreams are fascinating, fascinating. At my church, we do a Wednesday night series every year. And this year, the theme for the Wednesday night series is Dreams of the Bible. And those are going to have some great lessons. In fact, if you're interested in following along with that, it begins in April. You can look it up at our church website at arcoc.com. Or you can find our podcast for the church, Asheville Road Church of Christ. Uh, You can find... The lessons that way, they just automatically pop up into the feed as we begin. It won't start till April, though, and uh, we'll talk probably about this dream as well as a number of other dreams. There's so many of them in the Bible. Dreams are just fascinating, and they're a part of our subconscious that, of course, occurs when we sleep. And there's something about when you sleep, your consciousness lets go and releases all of these repressed feelings and ideas and thoughts and ambitions and other things maybe that we would never consciously let out they come out in these vivid ways in symbols and scenes and impressions and sounds and portrayals and all all these things dreams are weird and they're Not sequential, and we're still trying to figure them out, but there are a lot of specialists who believe we can learn a lot about ourselves by looking at our dreams. And dreams have been studied for a long time. The study of dreams is nothing new. Uh, There are records of people thinking and talking about dreams that go back as far as 4000 BC. Uh, During Roman times, which was much later than that, Striking and significant dreams were submitted to the Senate for analysis and interpretation. Uh, You can read in the book of Daniel about how Daniel interpreted dreams, but today's dream in the life of Jacob is about the earliest one we have a record of. I mean, this may be the earliest dream that you can read about. I'm probably missing something from the life of Abraham or someone else that came before Jacob, but Jacob is about as early as you can get we're in Genesis chapter 28 here and as I said you can learn about a lot about yourself through dreams but you can also learn a lot about God now in the last episode let me catch you up Rebecca and Jacob deceived Isaac Jacob's father into blessing Jacob instead of his brother Esau who was the oldest although they were twins and now Esau, in a rage, plans to murder Jacob. So Rebekah is sending her favorite son away. And the official reason for the journey is so that Jacob could go find a wife for himself among Rachel's... Uh, I'm sorry, among... Rebe- I'm going to do that several times, Rachel and Rebecca among Rebecca, his mother's people in Mesopotamia. That's the official reason. But really, what he's doing is he's fleeing the wrath of his brother. So Jacob runs towards Haran, and he stops to rest in a certain place, and he lays down his head on a rock, and he sleeps. And that night he has a strange dream that's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 28. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven that's the dream and by analyzing it not only do we learn a great deal about what God has to say about Jacob but we learn a lot about what he has to say to us and how he says it so let's look at this starting with the place that Jacob finds himself in the word place is a key word here if you look back over the text It's used six times in just 11 verses. And at first, this place just appears to be another campsite on a long, fearful journey from Beersheba to Haran. But in the end, it turns out to be sacred ground. After his dream, Jacob becomes convinced that this is nothing less than the dwelling place of God, and he names the place Bethel, meaning house of God. Now, Bethel was... Formerly a Canaanite city called Luz and it was located about 12 miles north of where Jerusalem is today. We don't know if Jacob was aware of this but Abraham had been there before twice and he had built uh, an altar and offered sacrifices. Later, after Jacob's day Joshua would conquer the land of Canaan and Bethel was given to the tribe of Benjamin as a land inheritance. After that time The Ark of the Covenant made it a special place by being kept there during the period of the Judges, and then after the people of God were divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, Bethel was in the southern part of the northern kingdom. Now Jeroboam, king of the northern kingdom, was afraid that his ten tribes would defect to Judah, the southern kingdom, because Jerusalem and the temple was located there. So he set up two places for worship as alternatives to Jerusalem and put uh, golden calves there and Bethel was one of the places that he chose. So Bethel must have been this place that carried a special spiritual significance. It was viewed in Jacob's day forward as sacred ground. And Jacob is not the only one ...to whom God has called to special places. You can look to other stories in the Bible and see God calling people to special places. That's what he did with Moses, calling him to the burning bush, and then later to Mount Sinai. Paul seems to have been called out to the uh, desert areas of Arabia after his conversion to receive a revelation from God. John was exiled on the island of Patmos. That turned out to be a sacred place... We may not receive miraculous revelations today, but God still calls us to quiet places so that we can commune with Him through His Word, meditate on His law day and night. The Psalms say that a person who does that is blessed. We don't do that enough. We're so distracted. Uh, We're distracted by our technology. We're distracted by our busy lives. And we've actually come to view alone time as a bad thing. So you'll find yourself doing this if you find any space in your schedule, any quiet time, you automatically try to fill it up with something. You turn on the radio, you pick up your phone, you get onto social media, you fill that time up because who wants to just sit there and be quiet for a minute or two? That's the attitude that we have towards solitude these days, and it's really not good for our spiritual lives and our inner inner selves. We need we need to nourish those inner selves and nourish our souls through solitude. The Greeks thought of a God named Muse who spent a lot of time in contemplation and meditation. And later that idea of musing came to refer to the act of musing, thinking, contemplating. Now we often think of amusement. That's a Greek term as well. The, in Greek the letter A or alpha is like a prefix that negates the force of the root. Kind of like in English we would put the uh, prefix un or m or something like that in-in to negate the force of uh, a root. That The alpha privative, the uh, letter A is transliterated into English, was used in Greek that way. So if muse means to think, and contemplate, amusement is not thinking. The whole entertainment industry is set up to amuse us, and it's a powerful tool, really, to keep us from thinking. I'm not saying that entertainment is wrong. I'm just saying God calls us to special, quiet places of contemplation to dwell upon Him and His Word, and we need to go to those places just as much as Jacob needed to go to Bethel, where he found himself. Now, let's look at the dream. There are several elements in this dream that are very interesting. Probably the most um, interesting is the latter. Some translations, I, Robert Alter's translation, which I'm using a lot as a comparison, uh, translates this a ramp, like a dirt ramp. It's a dream, so what really matters is that it's something that goes from a lower place to a higher place that angels can ascend and descend on, It's a ladder. I I just like that terminology better because it's the most familiar, I guess. But later, he would call this place the gate of heaven. So the ladder and the gate both are there in the dream to represent access, access to heaven. Then you have the angels. The angels are the ones ascending and descending the ladder, going up and down on it. The word angel literally means messenger, messenger. And so their activity of ascending and descending through the access point of the gate of heaven seems to suggest revelation. God is speaking to mankind and maybe even listening to mankind because they're not just descending. These messengers are ascending. They're going up back to heaven from earth. The third major element that you may have noticed in the dream is a reiteration of the covenant that God had originally made with Abraham. You know the covenant by now. I will make you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That message was passed down to Jacob, as it had been given to his father Isaac, and to his grandfather Abraham, and all of that was packed into this dream. So, you know, it's not that complicated. God is saying, I have a message from heaven to you, I'm revealing to you that this covenant that I made with Abraham and that I made with Isaac is made to you and your descendants. Very special thing. So, he used a dream to communicate. God is communicating in all these different ways throughout time. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 makes that clear. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There are many ways in which he does this. There's a great list in Geisler and Nix's general introduction to the Bible. Uh, For example, there are angels uh, like Gabriel who came and told Joseph and Mary that they would have uh, the Christ child. So angels have long delivered messages from heaven to earth. In fact, as I said before, the word angel literally means messenger. Why don't we have these celestial intrusions all the time today? Uh, Why doesn't God continue to use them? Well, think about how that would be if every time God needed to give us a revelation, a message, He used an angel to do it. There would constantly be these heavenly intrusions into the earthly realm. It would be very distracting if you think about it. Not the most efficient means to deliver a message. Another example are visions and dreams, as we have here. Uh, But think about that, if that was the only way that God communicated with us. Uh, Dreams are very subjective. Uh, Most of the time, we can't understand what they mean. They're symbolic. Uh, they're They're not objective at all. You can't really apply a dream to every man, woman, and child. And then there are other mysterious means of communications, like the Urim and Thummim, which were located in the breastplate of the high priest, and the lot, which is kind of like casting die, dice. Die is singular, dice is plural, I think. Casting dice. Uh, So those were ways that people could inquire of God, as long as they were the authorized means, like the... Urim and the Thummim that were in the high priest's ephod but they could only give like a yes or no answer they weren't really very descriptive at all and if you ask the right questions you would get the right answers but that's not the way we want to limit our revelation either Uh, you can also list the moral law within us Uh, you can think of creation these things give general revelation about God But like the lot, they they don't give you a whole lot of detail. And then a lot of people would love to have the audible voice from heaven, like at Jesus' baptism, or a direct miracle of some kind, as we see in many places, maybe like Balaam's donkey who's speaking. But again, this is the same problem you have with the angels. What if God had to use a miracle or... A booming voice from heaven every time he wanted to communicate with us, it would be very disturbing to everyday life, and maybe another person's revelation to them would uh, interrupt my life and confuse me, and maybe I wouldn't understand if that was for him or me. You can understand what that kind of life would be like. And so Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 continues from the many diverse ways that God communicates down to one way. It says in these last days God has spoken to us by his son so in the past he spoke in many ways by prophets by dreams by Urim and Thummim by lot by audible voice and direct miracle by angels by dreams but now he speaks to us by his son oh that's interesting still you have the question how does he speak to us by his son and we have a clue to that in Mark chapter 3 verse 14 Which says, Jesus ordained 12, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. The apostles were the messengers of Jesus' word to us. Uh, In another place, uh, Jesus says to the Father, I've given them the words that you gave to me. That's John 17, verse 8. So, Jesus gave his words to the apostles, which is... Fine, but how do the apostles get the message from God, from the Holy Spirit who guided them? How do they get the message to us? And the answer to that question is the Bible, the written word of God. Let me share with you an example from Ephesians. Uh, this is Ephesians chapter 3. Paul, an apostle, is writing this, and listen very carefully at the process. He points this out very plainly that he received the Word of God miraculously, the Word of Christ, and he passes it on through the written Word. Ephesians 3, um, I'll start reading verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation, he means by miraculous revelation there, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as I have written briefly. Now look at this. When you read this, when you read what the apostle has written, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It hasn't been revealed to everyone by the Spirit, just to the holy apostles and prophets. And then he says, if you want to know our insight, the apostles' insight into the mystery of Christ, then just read what we've written. And by reading, you can perceive the insight into the mystery of Christ. So the process is spelled out very plainly. We get it mixed up. We look for miracles and other things. But the process is spelled out very plainly to us. We don't have dreams like Jacob's dream, where God is trying to communicate to us through visions. Today, God speaks To us by his son, who spoke to the apostles, who received the truth by the Holy Spirit, and wrote it down. And when we read their words, the words of the apostles and the prophets, we can perceive their insight into the mystery of Jesus Christ. So we're talking about the dream. Now I want to I want you to pay close attention. Remember in the dream there were several elements, and one of the elements was the ladder and the gates of heaven, which show access, and another element were the angels ascending and descending, which show revelation, and the third element was the covenant. Take a close look at how the covenant is expressed here in Genesis 28. Verse 14 again, in you and your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed." offspring I'm reading from the ESV here offspring is not the best translation because it it kind of hides the singular quality of the word that God used the most literal translation really is what you have in the King James which is seed as opposed to seeds plural it's seed singular so God's not talking about all of Jacob's descendants he's talking about a particular descendant now this is really interesting because when the covenant was first expressed to Abraham, it wasn't singled out that way. It just said, I will make you a great nation, and in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So in your nation, uh, your nation somehow going to bless all the nations of the earth. But here, within this nation, evidently there's going to be a, a single descendant that God would use to bless all people. And this is someone who would become known in prophecy as the son of David, the son of man, Emmanuel, the branch. He's called the servant, the prince of peace, mighty God, everlasting father, anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And this part of the covenant is interpreted for us by Paul in Galatians 3 verse 16, Listen to what Paul says. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the focal point. Not just of this dream, but of the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. If you don't read the Bible that way, you're not reading it correctly. The theme of the Bible is salvation, and the main character of the Bible is Jesus Christ. And that comes out very plainly as Paul interprets it for us in Galatians chapter 3. There's one last thing I want to draw out from Jacob's ladder, from this wonderful dream. And that's the bargain that he makes afterwards. Everything looks great down through verse 17. But what does Jacob do in response to this communication from heaven? Listen to what he does. He does something unbelievable to me, but it's really consistent with Jacob's nature. So early in the morning, verse 18 says, Jacob took the stone that he'd put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying... If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace then the Lord shall be my God and the stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house and of all that I that you give me I will give a full tenth to you He makes a bargain he gets this dream from heaven a revelation repeating the covenant made with Abraham and Isaac, and it wasn't passed to his brother Esau, but again he receives confirmation that he indeed would be the child of promise, the one through whom the the covenant would be repeated, this wonderful honor, and he responds by making a vow, by negotiating. Jacob is still the negotiator. He's the same guy who bought his birthright from his brother for a bowl of red stew. He made a vow that, in my opinion, was not good. There are different kinds of vows. You know, marriage vows, those are good. Oaths in court, legal and good. Our legal system depends on those kinds of things. But this is one of those Jonah vows. You know, like Jonah made from the belly of the whale. He's making a vow when he's not really in a position to negotiate, And, you know, Jonah's saying, Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll never disappoint you again. Jacob is saying, If, Lord, you'll save me from Esau and protect me on my journey, if you provide me with food to eat and clothing to wear, then I'll worship you and set up this pillar as God's house and give tithes of my possessions. Who is that bargain benefiting the most? Who is honored by the bargain? I don't think it looks like God is. To me... It looks like Jacob's trying to, trying to honor himself in this negotiation. Jacob, the favored cheat. And before we're too critical, let's admit, we negotiate with God as well. God's revealed His will to us through the written word, and He has told us in His word that we'll suffer hardship, but He can turn that hardship into good. Romans 8 verse 28, but then we say, Lord, if you'll make an exception in my case, and if you'll refine me without the pain, then I'll go to church and pray and give and tell others about Jesus. He's revealed the plan of salvation. He's made the plan very clear in His Word. Yet we'll say, if you'll let me do this my way, if I can leave off repentance, if I can leave off baptism, if I can leave off faithful living. If you'll make an exception for me, then you can have me as your child. And something tells me that our offers to God are as useless as Jacob's rock in Bethel. That's the problem with vows. They show a lack of faith in God's word. He's told us what he expects. He's the one in the position of authority. It's not up to us to make a offer. The proper response would be obedience. Jacob should have stopped at verse 17, had the dream, believed the dream, went on his way, trusting that the Lord would take care of him. But he's still negotiating. He has a long way to go. He has many more interesting experiences. Some of the best are yet to come. We'll watch him grow this favored cheat. So stay with me on Wide Margins.